Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now we're doing a taped show today, so you won't be able to call in, but that gives you an entire hour to enjoy learning from our guests. Now today we're going to be talking about patient safety. You know, it's something we don't often think about in terms of medical errors, but unfortunately, Simple mistakes, they can actually be deadly if someone sick is hurt in the hospital, but there are a lot of things that all of us can do to prevent that, particularly family, loved ones, and patients themselves. You know, even with the best intentions, a chain of events can happen that we could stop, but that if not stopped, could put everybody at risk. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Leslie Chun and Dr. Julius Fahm. They are both here from Queens Medical Center Dr. Leslie is here as a graduate of Iolani, did his undergrad at Harvard and then medical and business school at UCLA, residency at Massachusetts General, and now is the chief quality officer and vice president of medical staff services at Queens. Dr. Julius Pham went to medical school at UCLA, did his residency and training at the Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan, his fellowship and PhD at John Hopkins, and he's here on a one-year loan. Hopefully, we'll be able to convince him to stay, and he's here working to implement some of the great things that were discovered at Hopkins right here in the islands to improve patient safety and quality. So I want to welcome you both to the show today. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. Now, you know... I've gotten obsessed. I'm just going to start off with I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with this show, and I would not recommend people watch it if they like to ride planes. But I am just obsessed with this show, Aircraft Investigation. In in Europe, it's called Mayday. And, And I watch this ridiculously because I find that... You know, there's it's it's these tiny little details, these little things that have happened maybe even years before that allow this chain of events. And then the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, comes in to investigate. The FAA gives this whole analysis of what's going on. And and by the end of that, even it's like a one hour show by the end you understand exactly the chain of events of what happened, how hard people tried. Did they land the plane safety safely? Did they go ahead and, you know, were there survivors? Did the plane crash? I got to tell you, though, doesn't make me feel good when I fly. I know there's more car accidents than aircraft accidents. But yeah, a little turbulence will make my, my brain go back to that show. And you know, today we're talking a little bit about the medical aspect of things. And I was curious enough to to learn from... Dr. Julius, just now, you said that they're actually in the process of developing a similar a similar system to help doctors learn from one another. Right now, it's sort of this era of don't ask. It's almost like a don't ask, don't tell policy. Did you do something wrong? Don't let anyone know. What are the latest principles in patient safety? And you've come with an excellent pedigree from Hopkins, and it's your... It's your boss. It's your. It's the guy you work with who has established some of the great guidelines that we're all following. Tell me more about that. And am I going to get intrigued and want to go to all of the, go to this collaboration of all of the medical events now too? Yeah, thanks, Kathy. I think the airline industry is um, leaps and bounds ahead of uh, healthcare in terms of uh, safety and in terms of quality. We really have much to learn from them. They've really taken um, safety. Uh, and uh, turned it into a science. Uh, they really have uh, use of 
um, things, as you mentioned, uh, accident investigation, where they truly learn from their mistakes and they do things to ensure that those mistakes don't happen again uh, in the airline industry across the board. I think we're just at the beginning, you know, in the infancy stages of patient safety. Um, we are starting to um, accept and build into uh, healthcare some of those strategies and some of those principles, but we still have much to learn. And then there's actually a departure from the airline industry um, that healthcare cannot just adopt um, lock, stock, and barrel and put into healthcare. And I'll just give you uh, one simple example is that. Um, across the country, we have uh, 5,000 hospitals uh, about. And um, uh, when you talk to people, they say, well, if you've been in one hospital, you've been in one hospital. Because um, besides the different health care systems, the large groups, most hospitals function very different. They're, they, they're very unique. They have the different um, uh, IT systems. They have different systems for medication administrations. Um, for example, the medication infusion pumps, the devices we use. And um, But when you compare to the airline industry, there's probably a handful of airlines, maybe less than 10 in the United States. Um, so uh, it's much simpler uh, to do one of the strategies that we know um, scientifically can uh, make things safer is to standardize. And so um, therein you have one um, principle that um, we have a difficult time with in healthcare. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But um, to your point, I agree with you completely. You know, we have so much to learn from the airline industry and, um, and so much uh, uh, to improve. Well, you brought up a really good point. You know, there's only a couple of 747 planes. You know, they might make a slight tweak in where they put a certain button. But in general, they're all operated the same. And if you're, you do like this flight checklist before you, you know, the pilot does. I actually... Uh, ironically enough, I actually got my private pilot's license years ago, and I was a very unsuccessful pilot for one reason only, and that's motion sickness. And if you have motion sickness, you should not go take private pilot lessons. I'm just going to throw that out there. And yes, I did. But I remember, you know, you learn. I learned on this little Cessna 172, and any Cessna 172 you go into, it all looks the same. It's very standardized. If you're going to learn on a different type of a plane, like a Piper, you would learn at the Piper. And eventually, you can get good enough to sort of use your skills to interpret how to do it on another plane. But when you really are getting set in knowing what to do, you're getting familiar with your system. So, you know, you mentioned 5,000 hospitals, and you're right. We do things differently where I work than where they, what they do at Queens, what they do at Kaiser, what they do at Wahiwa. There is a slight bit of more of an idiosyncratic way that things are done. You can't always just step in and have it look completely familiar there are slight variations. Can, now, uh, Kathy, if I can just add that, um, if we carry the analogy, if I were a pilot and I were to ch move from a 777 to a 767, um, one might say, well, flying is the same. The mechanics are the same. If I'm a pilot, I should be able to move freely. But, you know, they're very clear that um, the mechanics, as you say, and the logistics are important, and they require their pilots to spend time in the second seat and to learn those idiosyncrasies uh, before moving on and flying on their own. And I think yep, that's an right. important aspect. You're right. That's true. And I never got to that point because <laughs> I wasn't a very good pilot. I'm much better in medicine, I swear, people I am. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Dr. Leslie, your, your career and what you've learned thus far. You went to various different hospitals. You did your training in different locations now you're back at Queens and you're helping establish this whole patient safety 
collaboration, trying to make sure that we do things better. Have you found a way amongst the hospitals that Queens is the entire group collaborates with? Have you found a way to standardize things? So, Kathy, standardization is really key, as you were mentioning in the airline industry or end industry, that if there's too much variability, then there's a bigger chance for errors. Um, Having seen with the four hospitals that Queens currently um, has within its system, um, we are moving towards that standardization. Do we have the same IV pumps throughout the place? So if a nurse goes from one hospital to the next, are they familiar with it or do they need to be retrained? Um, To others of just um, uh, medications, IV solutions, um, whatever it may be, the more and more we standardize, the better. The the other part that we, we talk about is just being able to discuss things that go wrong and to have a safe forum where we can learn from each other. And that leads to more and more learning as well as a potential standardization of processes. And that's something that I think we're missing. You know, I mean, I just don't feel like there is any sort of yet. And I know I know that there, it's, it's coming. But I don't feel like there's any real sort of way that I could log on, belong to a group, look at all these different things that have happened and what is the learning point of every different mistake? Because it doesn't have to be a deadly mistake. It could be something simple. I remember I was going to visit my my stepmother-in-law who was at a hospital and she had an IV. And, you know, whenever you visit family members, I don't know about you, but I always go in and I look at everything and I'm like, ooh, what kind of medicine is being infused? Let me take a look. So I was visiting her and I noticed that she was supposed to be on a certain antibiotic and she was given that antibiotic, but it had another patient's name on it. And so I brought it to the attention of the staff and I said, well, you know, it's the same one. I know this is what she was supposed to get, but that's not her name. And if that can happen, what happened to that other individual whose name is this? Did they get their medicine? Did they get it on time, et cetera? And maybe I made a little bit of a big deal about it. And, you know, I got a call from a nurse administrator that said, by the way, everything was fine. It was just a simple switch. And I said, you know, I'm really happy. But that would be something to mention to other individuals, because if something like that, some something so simple could happen, and it was one nurse who was taking care of two people, they were in rooms right next to one another. Luckily, they were on the same medicine. One bag was started for one, could have been started for the other. Equal timing. There was no adverse outcome. But that alone says to me, we need to improve. We need to get better. Exactly. And I think um, at Queens, one of the systems that's been in place to help prevent that is um, using barcoding for the ID band to make sure it's the right patient and to help the compu- use the computers to help make sure that the, that's the right patient as well as the right medication at the right time. So that's why people say, let me check your birthday again, like 10 times when you're in the hospital. And you mentioned the barcoding. So explain to me a little bit about how that system works, because some people who have been patients in the hospital may not actually understand what that was all about. Sure. So if you're admitted to many of the hospitals throughout the U.S., but not all, um, you get a wristband that actually has a barcode on it. And on that barcode basically has your birth date and who you are, and um, the computer helps check. So if you're supposed to get a medication at 5 o'clock in the evening, um, the computer order is already written on the computer, and the nurse will scan your ID and also scan the medication. And if it doesn't match up to what the computer says you should be getting at that time, it alarms, and it helps the nurse understand, saying it's the wrong patient or the wrong medication. And so it helps prevent errors from happening. And this is something we've adopted with a computerized system. Mm -hmm. Not all hospitals use it. What did we do before this? 
I mean, I guess we just went by handwritten. I mean, I remember when I first started in medicine here in 99, we were still doing dictation, but it was coming on paper charts. And now there aren't paper charts anymore. There are somewhere in record retention, but there aren't paper charts that I look at when I see individuals. And these days I'll ask somebody, what medications are you on? And they may say to me, well, it's in the system. It's in the computer. Take a look. And that alone, that simple reliance on technology, which is good because it can help reduce errors, but it also is the reason why maybe we don't put in enough thought about things anymore. I mean, boy, I don't know anyone's phone number. I just look at my phone and click their name. It's like I've become number blind. And so unless you really take an effort to remember a phone number, boy, if you dropped your phone in the pool or took it in the ocean with you, you're not going to be able to call anybody at all. You're going to have a huge problem. I think that's a key point. So no matter how much technology is put in there, the human component you can't fully replace. And there's pros and cons with the human um, abilities. Um, Humans are prone to making errors, but there's also the check and balance that we can think critically beyond what a computer could could do. And so it's a testament to families and and patients being actively active participants in their care and not passive about it. Because the questioning attitude and um, perhaps my favorite thing in the safety world is speaking up for safety. If something doesn't seem right, doesn't seem what should be going on, someone should speak up and to question it because that ability uh, technology can't replace. Well, and I like that, that speaking up for safety. You know, I'm curious, Dr. Julius, we talked a little bit earlier and you're right now here for a year, but you hail from the East Coast for a lot of your time and career. And that's a different kind of attitude there. Yeah. um, Thanks for bringing that up, Kathy. Um, I've been here for a short period of time, about a year and a half now. And um, I do sense uh, Hawaii has a unique culture. Um, We talked about a little bit uh, among my colleagues, and uh, you and I have talked about it, that um, there is a deep sense of trust in the healthcare system and in physicians specifically, and there's a deep amount of respect that's uh, afforded to, um, I would say more so than in my experience on the East Coast. And, and that's wonderful. I, I think that um, it's it's great that our uh, the peoples here in Hawaii um, have that trust and respect. Um, uh, but <clears throat> on the other hand, we do have opportunities for uh, both speaking up Uh, and knowing about um, uh, patients and knowing about what's going on in their medical care. Because when we have patients and family members and loved ones partner with us, uh, we both provide better medical care and safer care. And I'll give you an example is that um, if uh, if we have a medication error where um, we inadvertently um, tell a patient to stop a medication that they may or may not be on, Having that patient know um, their their medications and exactly why they're taking it, that'll allow them to say, hey, um, Dr. Pham, you know, I'm, I'm not really taking um, that medication. Um, is there a, a reason why it was prescribed to me? And then that p- performs a check and a balance uh, to prevent medical errors. Well, and we bring up the whole idea of electronic medical records, and they're so good, and yet there's challenges. And, you know, one of the things that's enabled us to do is not have to read my handwriting, which is, yeah, sometimes really scary. So we don't have to handwrite prescriptions, which is good, because pharmacists don't have to be cryptographers trying to read these prescriptions. But we do a lot electronically, and I've seen that that actually can cause some changes in the electronic medical record. Our record is linked to what medicines that I order at a pharmacy for an individual. 
And some medications can be on that list that maybe they're not taking. They took a year ago. It's not current. So we've really had to be much more careful about how we document in that electronic medical record, stopping medicines that were stopped, not duplicating medications that have a different dose so that when people get a printout, which you can now get after every visit, a printout of what medicines we have listed that you're taking, you can make an op- you can take the opportunity to make sure that's exactly what you have at home. So that's another area where I think we can really help out. You mentioned that People tend to have this reverence for the medical profession here. I would agree, and, and very often in my practice, I'll ask someone, what would you like to do? And then they defer to me and say, well, you're the doctor, you choose. And as long as they're okay with that, I'll give them my best advice and what I recommend. But I think sometimes people here might be a little reluctant. Maybe it's just a cultural thing that they can't possibly ask the physician a question because, of course, they're 100% correct. There couldn't be any any problem with that. And Dr. Chen, I'm curious because you've, you've been here, you grew up here, and now you're back. Do you sense that as more of a cultural issue? Is it a society issue? Is it just a geographic thing? What is your interpretation having been here, gone forward and gotten an education and come back to Hawaii? Why do you think people might not be interested in asking or speaking up? I think a big component is the cultural and many of the Asian influences here in Hawaii, where speaking up and challenging authority isn't necessarily how many of us have grown up. Um, whereas um, up on the East Coast, where I spent um, a good part of my life, um, that that challenging of authority is much more appreciated and a part of um, that culture. I would even say as a um, physician, a young physician up um, East in, in Boston, um, some of the times on clinical care, that if there were people who were more experienced, bigger titles, um, your mentors, you didn't necessarily question or have that questioning attitude um, because I, or I didn't have as much as, as some of my colleagues that had grown up and, and, tra- and been purely on the East Coast. And when you were there, did you, did you grow into it? I did. Um, and there- then you brought it back home. <laughs> yes. I kind of hope so, because we could all use a bit of we could use a bit of that. I think it's a positive thing. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Julius Pham and Dr. Leslie Chun. And we're talking today about patient safety. What can we all do to make sure that we all can stay as safe as possible throughout the entire medical continuum, whether it be when you see a doctor in the office, when you go to the hospital, or when you come home from the hospital and have your family or friends or even yourself start taking on your medical care. We will be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Julius Pham and Dr. Leslie Chun. They are both working hard at Queen's Medical Center and helping to keep all of us safe. Everybody who's ever been a patient needs to know that there are some things that they can do to help keep themselves and their loved ones safe throughout their hospital transition to home, into seeing their doctor in the clinic, into seeing all of their various specialists. We're talking today about how to make things safe. Now, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the ways technology can help us and some of the ways that it may not help us as much if we're not using it very carefully. And, you know, I'm curious, uh, Dr. Pham, you mentioned that in other industries, technology actually helps people a lot. I think about the ways in which I use a computer these days and how I remember being in college and typing out papers on like a typewriter. I mean, I would make so many mistakes. It was ridiculous. Whiteouts and those corrective tapes were great. You never have to do that anymore. We've got technology. We've got, you know, word processing systems and things like that. Tell me a little bit, has technology helped medicine as much as it has other industries? Yeah, probably not as much as other industries, but, you know, we've come a long way. I think you and uh, Dr. Chen were just talking about how medications were delivered, um, you know, not too long ago, within the last 10 years, we were writing orders by hand. Somebody had to look at our handwriting. They had to read my handwriting. It was horrible. <laughs> That's right. And then um, that paper, a piece of paper, had to go down to the pharmacy, and the pharmacist had to marry that up with the medication and then bring it back. And so our systems now are uh, much tighter uh, in terms of safety and closing the loop, but we have so much more to to gain. You know, much of the benefits that the airline industry, the nuclear industry, the railway industries have uh, achieved, they've done through medicine. Uh, but we we're only tapping at the surface of that. And by and large, the way we practice medicine today um, hasn't changed too much. And I, uh, you know, we've been, we've been talking about it for the last ten years, but I. I'm looking forward to the next 10 years where we really do tap into a lot of this technology, um, use of social media for sharing. Um, just a few years ago, a colleague of mine um, developed a program where um, they helped uh, kidney transplant patients find recipients or find donors on Facebook. Um, so, uh, you know, you would go on Facebook and you would share that, you know, a friend of mine needs a kidney. And what a wonderful way to help people find um, appropriate HLA-type matched uh, donors. When I mean, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg thought of that when he was in school. <laughs> Let's see if we can help with kidney donor trans, trans uh, you know, doing all this sort of uh, transplantation. I mean, uh, talk about amazing. So, so Facebook has been one of the technologies that we've used. Uh, tell me, if you were to think about like this wild, improbable goal for technology and medicine, think crazy out of the box. What would you think? Hmm. I, it's hard, hard for me to think crazy out of the box, but can I just share with you some things that are very close on the horizon? Yeah, because they might be crazy in my mind, and yeah. maybe they're around the corner. Yeah, just something that uh, it's very practical, but you talked about medication list, and uh, people have to carry around this little sheets of paper. And um, when somebody changes the medication, you see that scribbled out um, in your office. And we see that all the time, but we have electronic um, devices that we carry around with us all the time. And there are technologies and programs out there where you can keep your medications list. You can keep your uh, medical uh, histories, all the things that you've done on there. And imagine just walking to your doctor's office and just say, here, download this. And then you've got your complete history on there, everything that's ever happened to you in your whole health care. Um, that's not too far away. And that doesn't take um, anything more than what we have today. 
Yeah, I always wonder about that. You know, like, could you have a little credit card or an ID or even just your smartphone? Could that be used to collect some of your own medical information? I think one of the great things that we've done in medicine is given people more access to their records. I know both you have... Uh, you know, Hawaii Pacific Health has done this. Um, Kaiser has done this. A lot of different medical systems have done this, giving patients a way to log into their medical chart, take a look at what's documented there as far as their history, take a look at their medicines, look at their test results. That's really helped to me to allow people to have more information, to have a little bit more taking control of their health and what's going on, and to have access to data. Now, There's arguments, plus and minus. Some people don't want too much access. But I really think in the appropriate venue, having that information is certainly better than not. Of course, we know that there have been medical centers that have had, even recently, some malware and some people who have tried to break into the computer system, hackers, et cetera. I think that's always going to be something that holds us back a little bit and keeps us from achieving this really wild goal of patients having all their records on their own. I know... Years ago, when I was uh, in medical school, I'd spent a few weeks in India. And this was back prior to cell phone time because, yes, I'm that old. And so, you know, patients would come to the clinic with their medical record on this, you know, it was basically like four inch by maybe eight inch. It's, It's like a double index card. That's what it would be. And that would be their entire medical record. And they would take it home with them. And you would try and read this tiny handwriting. I mean, I... It was amazing to me. But that was their whole chart, and they were responsible to carry that. And given the situation in various countries, that may not be realistic to have someone be in charge of that paper. But it does lend a new a new sort of thought to who owns your records. And if you own your records, should you be the one to carry it? And if you carry it, would that help with your medical care? I'm curious. I'm curious, Dr. Uh, Dr. Leslie, what do you think would be a, a wild goal? I'm with Julius in terms of, I'm not sure in terms of wild, but in terms of the medical record, I think it's it's been amazing. Right now, there's a number of organizations throughout the U.S. that have um, um, the same computer system that Queens and um, HPH has and, and, other, and, and Kaiser. Sure, Kaiser as well, yeah. And it's called Epic. And you can go anywhere in the U.S. And, um, part- and, and get medical care on the inpatient side, and they will have access to that um, what's called Care Everywhere, where they can see into your record. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, because if you wind up at a different hospital, one of the hardest things to do when you're in the emergency room is if you don't have a list of your medicines, remember which ones you're on or what they're for. And yet that can be critical information for physicians who are treating you. So there is a way that you can get this, quote, care everywhere. It's basically a way that you can have read-only access to medical records from other facilities. And just today, like literally... Just a couple of hours ago, I had an individual who came to see me, and she had a test that was done at your facility. And she said, I have to wait until next week to get the results. And I'm like, well, you know, I wonder if I could help you with that, if there's something that would be appropriate for me to reveal. So I went into Care Everywhere, and I looked into her record, and I said, you know what? Yes, you had this brain MRI done, and yes, it was okay. So don't don't spend the next couple of days fretting about it. I want you to still see the doctor who ordered it, go over all the information that's on there, but take a deep breath. They didn't see anything get bigger or grow. She had a benign, they call it a benign meningioma, a benign brain tumor. And the question is, does she need to have surgery? And she's older and was very worried about it. And I was able to say to her, no, you don't need to do that because I looked at the report. And I can see where it clearly says, stable, no change, four years, everything's fine. So that's actually a huge, valuable service 
for individuals from the patient side. But let's take a look at it from from the side of, of I get to look at your records if you're at another hospital and I'm your treating doctor. What about this critical time when patients go home? I sort of feel like that's an opportunity where if you ever wanted to know it's appropriate to ask questions about what medicines you're on or what treatments you need. I mean, a lot of times people are a little reluctant saying, but I've seen Dr. So-and-so for years. If, if I admitted to them that I didn't know what this pill was for, they would wonder why I didn't ask him before. I'm too ashamed. I can't ask them now. When you're discharged from a hospital, what a great opportunity to really go through that list of all your medicines, find out why you're on them, what they're for. Do you both have situations where you've seen that be really helpful in your practice? You're both in the hospital. You know, if you look at it, I mean, 365 days a year, you know, 24 hours a day, you're dealing with the medical condition yourself. You see your doctor maybe once a year, maybe a few times a year, but for maybe a 15-minute, half-an-hour appointment, that time is extremely important, but it's a small fraction of the time of your life. And if you are then not armed with the right information of how and the right understanding of your clinical condition, you're not going to be maximizing your care and there may be very simple things that you can do or should do to make sure that you're optimizing your health. What are some of those simple things? I think simple things is to ask the physician and his staff or her staff key questions of what are the top things I need to make sure I take care of and watch. Because in reality, there's so many things you can do and should do. You may not have enough hours in the day or enough time given all, all our competing demands where you may just need to know the top five things and know those super well to take care of your, your medical condition. And that's one, uh, one appropriate question, I think, to ask your physician of saying, with all the things going on with me, what are the top three things or the top five things I need to focus on and pay attention to and that my family should know too, that they can help me? And that's that power of um, personal interest and, and involvement as well as extending it to friends and family. Now, Dr. Julius, you work in the medical intensive care unit. That's a very specific part of the hospital. It is a place where people generally are extremely ill and require intensive care either because of their their breathing situation, they're on the ventilator, or maybe their heart situation, or maybe some other type of condition that would require intensive monitoring. What are some of the things that you see when you take care of people that could be areas where we need to work a little bit more carefully on safety? Um, in terms of uh, for patients, I, I agree with um, Dr. Chan. You know, uh, truly, sometimes we see um, some of the, some of the errors or per- perhaps misunderstandings, and they do come through to the intensive care unit. Um, I think several weeks ago, we had a patient uh, who was taking a medication that um, they didn't even the physician didn't even know that they were taking. Um, it was an error um, from the pharmacy. And so, so there's no way to know in the doctor's office if the patient doesn't bring in this medication, you wouldn't know. So the pharmacy makes an error, and now somebody's in the ICU. Yeah, now somebody's in the intensive care unit. And so um, to Dr. Chen's point is um, we really uh, would like families and uh, patients to partner with our healthcare professionals, you know, truly become a partner where um, you, as Dr. Chan says, you live with the disease. You know what's going on on a regular basis, and we need that information from you. We need you to be a knowledgeable partner at the table. So um, know your medical conditions. Know how has it changed in the last three months, the last six months. 
um, what are the things that I should be looking for uh, with this medical condition to know that things are not right? And then what are the things that cause my medical condition? What, what are the things that I should be doing to avoid, uh, excuse me, should I be avoiding to prevent progression of my condition? Um, another important thing, and it's, it's been brought up before, but I do want to reiterate it, is, is your medication list. And Kathy, you mentioned um, at the point of hospital discharge, what a great time to review that list and make sure it's right. Uh, and I would say, um, Definitely, and but let's take it one step further is, what about at every doctor's visit? Um, we have standards uh, across the healthcare industry that at every time um, a medication is changed, there's a process called medication reconciliation, and that's required. So if you come into the emergency department and I add a new medication to your list, um, I need to give you a list of both, both your previous medications and the new one that I've asked, excuse me, that I've um, added. If I'm going to take away a medication, I need to give you a new list of the um, your whole list, uh, specifically saying that you know you shouldn't take X medication anymore. And that process is so important in terms of uh, making sure that we uh, are all communicating well. Um, so there are some places in the system where we do fall down. Is that we might have that discussion with you then and there, but um, that information may or may not make it to your primary care doctor, or perhaps your cardiologist, your heart doctor, or your lung doctor. And so it's important. That's where partnering is. As a partner, you are the go-between between these specialists. And um, as a partner, uh, you need to make sure that they know as well when you come to visit them. Hopefully, our technology helps physicians and healthcare providers communicate better. Uh, but uh, some of the hospitals use different systems, as we've talked about. And so um, as patients and as family members, we want to ensure that um, that communication is seamless. Well, and I think, you know, you brought up a really good point about medicine reconciliation because I see this through the emergency room, and I see these documents come through the hospital. And yet very rarely do I see them come from other doctors' offices. You know, I'll change blood pressure medicines on someone all the time. I do it all day long. Oh, you're doing great. We can lower the dose. Don't I wish that happened all day? Usually not. Oh, no, your pressure's too high. We need to increase the dose or we need to go ahead and add another medication. And we often do so. We order the medicine. It changes the medicine list in the, in the computer record. But now it shows that they have two of the same medicine at different doses. And so unless you go in and take away the old one, now that patient's going to get a list and says they have two medicines. And I've seen it where people said, well, they were both on the list, so I thought I should take them both. And they come in and they say, I'm really lightheaded and dizzy. And I'm thinking, wow, you're taking way too much medicine, not what I thought you were, because I thought they understood what I was saying and they thought they understood what I was saying, but it was totally different. So it really does take this absolute commitment to make sure that that information when we call it an after-visit summary or whatever the document might be, is as accurate as humanly possible. And even when I think it's accurate and somebody, a patient, thinks it's accurate, they could go home and have a totally different set of medication in their house. So it's not just knowing that it's accurate in the electronic record. It's also knowing that it reflects what pills are in grandma's medicine cabinet so that she's taking the right medication and she's not taking too much of one or skipping another one. There's another thing that that bears mentioning, which I think is really another issue that we don't, I'll tell you now, we don't know enough in the medical profession about how a lot of the supplements affect some of our prescription medication. 
And if you ask, I did a little survey in my office a few months ago, and I asked all of my patients for like three days, just ask everybody. I asked them, are you taking any supplements? And it was very interesting because people often don't recognize what they're taking as a supplement. And by me, I mean any non-prescription medication. So if they're taking multivitamins, calcium with vitamin D, a little glucosamine, vitamin C, vitamin E, they don't call it a supplement. If they're taking an herbal mix of something, they may consider that to be a supplement, but they're not considering any of their other vitamins or anything else to be a supplement. And that was really surprising to me because I assumed that, yes, it is. Did you know vitamin E could interact with blood thinning medication? You know, if you're taking a multivitamin and you're on Coumadin, you have to be careful. A lot of different issues came up that I never expected. Have, have either of you had situations similar to that? I think it's well known across the industry that um, patients don't associate supplements and vitamins as potential um, um, conflicting with your your current medications, and it's and it's known that some of them have really bad adverse effects on the current medication. So it is important that those discussions happen with um, the prescribing physicians. Well, and and I'll have people bring in a supplement, and I'll look at the back of that box, like a true supplement of some type of something that they want to take. And I can't even pronounce some of those things. And there's 30 of them. I really don't know if it's going to cause an interaction with their other medications. I don't know of anybody who would. So if they're on serious heart medicines or blood thinners or, you know, even thyroid medications, I'll often say, listen, there is no way for us to cross-reference 30 ingredients that I can't pronounce with every single one of your medicines. I don't even know of the program that would do that. So if you're on a serious heart medicine or a blood thinner or something where a tiny little dose adjustment could cause a huge problem, don't take the supplement because you just don't know the answer. Yeah. And Kathy, I don't want to um, convey that you know patients should stop taking uh, supplements. I think for some patients, sure, um, these are important and um, they find value in the supplements. Uh, but I do uh, agree with your thought that. Uh, you know, it's important for you to tell us uh, what you're taking, and it's important for us to be aware of what you're taking. Uh, I'll just take your challenge a little bit further, is that sometimes it's hard for me to um, know the quality of the supplement. Um, you mentioned not knowing what medications are in there, but even when you know what's in there, we all know that there's different <laughs> qualities and different grades of things, and um, it presents a challenge, but um, uh, it's, it's something for us as healthcare providers to to be aware of. Sure, we kind of have to, because if we're not careful with that, we're not going to know exactly what what we should do. And we really do have at the heart of all this, the desire to do the absolute best for every single patient that we see. We want to treat them as if they're a member of our very own family, family members that we like, because all of us <laughs> have those black sheep people. We mean the family members that we like. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. And today we are talking about some excellent information about patient safety. Dr. Julius Pham and Dr. Leslie Chun are in the studio with me today. Both are currently practicing at Queens Medical Center. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some things that you can do to help keep yourself safe when you're in the hospital, when you're out of the hospital, when you're home, when you're looking at your medicines, or even looking at different various recommendations people have made for you medically. We are going to come back with some great information. We'll make our own little top 10 list of things you should do when you see your doctor or when you get admitted or discharged from the hospital. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the studio. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here talking about prioritizing patient safety with Dr. Julius Pham and Dr. Leslie Chun. They're both patient safety experts at Queens Medical Center. And and Dr. Pham is only here for another year or so unless we entice him to stay. And he is really helping us in a partnership with Queens Medical Center and John Hopkins that is really trying to help improve patient safety throughout the entire organization. And so it's really bringing to light some of the things that that we really are challenged with in medicine. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned that I'm obsessed with this aircraft investigation or airline disaster show. And it's just because I really like to know what are the things that could go wrong so that I can help learn myself, teach my colleagues, learn better medical care. Now, you can always look up a bunch of medical malpractice events, and that can help illustrate for doctors what problems that have occurred in various other medical settings. But we never want it to get to that point. We want to be able to be more proactive and positive in helping to keep people safe so that we don't have some sort of an accident or an injury or something that could have been avoided. There have been a couple of cases that are well known publicly in some hospitals where, you know, they have Hospitals have, have transplanted a an organ that was not a match or someone had surgery on the wrong side of their body or, you know, and it's funny because I often tell patients, okay, keep in mind when I look at you, my right is your left and your left is my right. So I'm going to turn around so that I can be you and raise my hand and make sure I've got the right side here. I mean, that's just in an office setting to make sure that I've got everything correct. But particularly in an operating room, there's all different sorts of things that we are trying to do to make sure that patients are safe. If you've ever had a surgery and somebody said, I want you to draw on your body something about where this surgery is, there's a reason for that. It's because it's trying to help keep you safe, keep doctors doing things in a very efficient manner, but also make sure that we're doing what it is that we need to do. So there's all different ways that people can get involved in their care. And before we took our quick break. We mentioned that we would come up with a little top 10 list, and I've got some things on my list, so I'm going to put you guys in a hot seat. Dr. Leslie, you're going to go first. Things people should do in various medical settings to keep themselves safe. I'll have you go back and forth so that, you know, not one person can list all the good answers and the other person's left like, what do I have left? All right. So, Dr. Leslie, you're on. What's what's one in our top 10 list? And they don't have to be in order. It's things that people could do to keep themselves safe. My favorite is speaking up for safety. Speaking yeah. up. Yeah. When would somebody want to do this? Something doesn't seem right with either their physician, the nurse, or anyone taking care of them. Ask a question. Clarify. Um, Just feel free to use your voice. Mm-hmm. Because even though we might have a culture of reverence for physicians and what's going on, don't be ashamed. Know that we want you to understand the process. And so ask a question. Exactly. Speak up. Say, hey, I don't get this. I don't understand it. All right. Okay. Well, that's one. Dr. Julius. Uh, Kathy, um, if if I can, before I give my one piece. Oh, you can, um, you're going to do five. <laughs> so you can speak up and say anything you want. And I, I don't want to convey to your listeners, Kathy, that um, the healthcare industry is um, is dangerous or unsafe because I think the vast majority, the vast, vast majority, we provide um, excellent care. And I see miracles performed at the Queens Medical Center every single day. Uh, we do wonderful, wonderful things. Uh, but um, the the air, excuse me, the medical field is inherently complex. Um, I would say it is so much easier to fly an airplane 
or operate a nuclear reactor than to take care of patients. And the reason is there's the complexity of the patients and there's the complexities of the providers. So, for example, um, a nuclear reactor, it, it operates kind of the same way every single day. Maybe there's some weather variations and perhaps the uh, same thing for the plane, but by and large, um, it's quite predictable and healthcare is uh, much more complex. And so we have to get it right um, 100% of the time. Even if we get it 99% of the time, it's just not good enough. And that's why um, we emphasize so much patient safety and we build all these systems and uh, we really obsess about it because uh, we, we need to make sure we get it right. And, and part of that getting it right is my one piece of advice is um, uh, bring a friend, bring an advocate, or be a friend, be an advocate, uh, be a family member. Um, there's probably uh, good evidence from uh, the research that suggests that if you come to your office visits uh, with a friend, you'll uh, be more likely to ask questions. Um, your friend and your advocate or family uh, will help remind you of questions that you had that perhaps you're a little too stressed and you can't remember. And um, they'll help you um, find a voice, perhaps speak up when at times when you um, are uncomfortable doing so. All right. Bring a friend. We've got speak up. We've got bring a friend. All right. We're back to you, Dr. Leslie Chun. The next thing for me would be um, to take an active role in your care and be involved. I think um, to rely on just purely the medical system to take care of you, it's just not enough. Um, you need to t- um, take responsibility and be active in your own care. And, you know, it's funny. I'll give you an example. Just about a week ago, I saw somebody and, you know, about, I don't know, a few months ago, they said that they wanted to follow up. They had gotten a phone call for following up on colon screening. And that's something that we want people to do. And so they were told, we got a call about colon screening. And uh, the the individual, the patient said, we called him back. But since they never called me again, I guess it's okay. And I said, really? Because it's your colon. It's your body. And if the message that you left a few months ago when you called them back, did not get translated. You want to make sure that you take an active role and proactively call that office because if it's been a few months, they're not calling you back. You've got to be the one to say, I still want to do this colon screening test. I want to make sure that I'm up to date. I'm going to take the initiative because if you're waiting for another department that might have left the message and or sent out a letter or who knows if you updated your address or who knows if we have the right address, you know, it's all these different little variables. We talk about complexity and there's so many different little things that could happen. So if you really want to take such an active role and get involved, make sure that when your doctor or someone like me says, I'm going to put in a consult for you to see a gastroenterologist, that not only do you do you take that phone call when it comes in, that you return it, and that if you don't hear from them, then you call me or you call that office. Be active, involved in your care. Be proactive, because that helps all of us. We're all human. This is something that would help us to make sure that things are done correctly. So I'm going to echo you on that one. All right, Dr. Julius, you're up. Um, I would say be prepared um, with the medical knowledge. And this is probably a, a subset of what Dr. Chen mentioned. But um, if I were uh, a loved one, a patient or a family member, I would have a, a probably a list of medical conditions, a list of medications, and perhaps allergies and I might stick it on the refrigerator because at 2 a.m., if something happens and the ambulance comes, um, you're going to show up in the hospital, and they're going to want to know all those things. 
And um, it's helpful to know these things with clarity uh, instead of just um, sharing that, you know, I can't remember perhaps two blue pills and one red pill. Um, Knowing uh, with certainty is going to help make sure you get safer care. All right. So be prepared. Have that list of medications, conditions, allergies. And if you are a, if you have elderly parents, you can be the person that types out this list or that keeps it for your parents. You know, it's, it's ironic because up until a couple of years ago, if you were to ask me what medicines does my dad take, I, I wouldn't know. I'd kind of sort of guess a couple of his conditions, but I should be able to answer that immediately right then and there, no questions asked. And I wasn't. And so it, I, I had to get on the ball with that. I had to get going, make sure that I could answer that question. And now I could. All right. So we are back to you, Dr. Leslie. Feels like a game show here. It is a game show. We've got we've got uh, speak up, bring a friend, active role, get involved, come prepared. What would be another thing that someone could do? I would supplement um, what Dr. Pham just said in terms of being prepared beyond medications and um, the medical conditions is to have your questions prepared beforehand. Um, sometimes seeing a physician or uh, healthcare professionals we can make be you in- nervous. Yeah, intimidating. And by having those questions thought of beforehand. Um, you can be, um, again, better prepared to have that discussion with your physician. Okay, so write your questions down. I often have people come in, and they've got a list of like five or six questions, and I say, let's just hit right on your list. Let's go through each one of these to make sure that I've addressed your priority issues, which are these questions, so that I don't just have my own agenda and say we're going to go over all these things. We've got to hit we, – we go to your questions first. Write them down because the, oh, by the way – after we've spent all of our time during a visit, I forgot to ask you, is this crushing chest pain heart problems? <laughs> you know, that needs to be first on your list. So it's a way to help organize your own thoughts, but also help your doctors as well. All right, Dr. Julius. Uh, Kathy, I'm going to cheat a little bit. And this is, not, this is not directly to safety, but um, I would say that please have a discussion on the goals of care with your loved ones and your family members and make sure that that's written, excuse me, and I'll add your physician and make sure that gets written down because as part of being prepared, um, I was just thinking about that list. Um, that list should include what your wishes are in the event that you get uh, sicker. Kathy, I know a few uh, months ago you had on a show a couple of our colleagues around advanced care planning, and it's so important because um, when you show up in the healthcare system, we want to know what what you want us to do. And we take so much guidance. And um, I just want to make sure that uh, we respect your wishes. That's a really good point because don't wait. And, you know, so often in the past, people would go into the hospital and someone would say, well, do you want to establish advanced care directives? And I'm like, what a great time. Somebody's sick, they're in pain, and we're asking them, how much better do you want us to get you? Not a really good time to ask the question. I say to people, it's like trying to buy car insurance after you've just had a car accident. That is such bad timing. So absolutely 100%. And these days, actually, as of January 1st, Medicare covers for you to see your doctor to have a discussion purely about advanced care directives and take whatever time it is that you need to go over your goals, your wishes, you can fill out a form then if you choose to. You do not have to. But it's it's brand new. They never used to cover just for this type of counseling visit. And as of January 1st, they do. So if you have questions and you, you don't have enough time when you see your doctor because you have five other things you're talking about, 
You can now schedule a visit just purely to discuss advanced care directives. Covered, no copay, you get to see your doctor and and really take the time to establish that. So I think that's a great idea. Talk about being proactive. I, I really like that one. And and now you're on the hook, Dr. Leslie. Um, my next one is to find providers, physicians, nurses, people that you really trust. You know, your health is so important that you don't want to be coming out of an appointment saying, gosh, I, and, and, and questioning. I don't like that guy. Yeah. yeah. Or that. Or who's I, that girl? She's or, just not like her. Or is what they told me true or not? And sure. Your, your, your health care is just too important. You still should have a questioning attitude and, 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 and understand it, but not so much where you're doubting um, the recommendations provided. Sure. Have that relationship of trust. Exactly. No, you can ask a question. You'll get an honest answer. And from the physician part, you know, I have no problem saying, I don't know. I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to go ask a colleague. I'll get back to you. I'll call so-and-so. I'll see what I can figure out with this because I may not have all the answers. I'm a primary care doctor. I am not an expert neurosurgeon, but I know one, and I can call him and get back to you. So great, great idea. Make sure that you really have a primary care provider that you really trust, that you can discuss this with, and have a center for where your medical care is. It's this whole concept, patient-centered medical home that we're really working on. All right. We are back to you, Dr. Julius. We only have three more to go. Three more. <laughs> I've got I'll, suggestions if you guys. I've, um, I'm going to take one that we've uh, previously talked about, but know your medications and yep. um, really know um, why you're taking it, first of all. Uh, know the dose and the time that you take it. And this doesn't have to be difficult. Uh, with technology today, you can put it on your phone. You can put it on a USB drive, put it on a sheet of paper. And then every time anybody changes that, um, let them know, uh, share with them what you currently have and say, um, do you know what I'm currently taking, and does this uh, seem right to you? And that way, it'll always be updated. Um, we um, we have uh, systems in the healthcare um, electronic records to uh, help make sure that that happens. But be your own advocate and make sure that you know that as well. All right, Dr. Leslie. Uh, the next I would recommend is um, if you can take a friend or take notes when you're at your take visit. Notes. Um, it's been In shown handwriting you can read because I take notes and I can't read it again. So, got it. It's been shown that um, you know because of um, we as patients when we see a doctor we walk out of there and remember very little. You know, and I don't mind if somebody says, "Can I record this?" I've actually had several patients who are caregivers of of patients say to me, "Can I just record this?" And I'm like, "All right, listen, do the audio, not the video. You don't need my face on your on your iPhone or on your Samsung or whatever device." talking at you, you know, it might not be a good angle, but, uh, but definitely record me. If you want to record the voice, then I will say for you exactly what I want you to transmit to your family and they can hear it in my voice. And if I, if they have questions, they can call me and ask me. They know exactly verbatim what I said. And calling and asking if it's not clear once you're home is, is very key. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pinch hit for the last one because I'm just going to get you guys off the hook and I'm going to say no your follow-up, know your appointments. That one of the most proactive ways you can be taking care of yourself is know when you have a scheduled appointment, when you need to be wherever it is, keep a list of all your upcoming follow-ups because there's nothing more difficult if you have complicated medical issues than seeing five different specialists, never knowing which appointment is when, try and make sure that you've got a list, share with your family, share with your loved ones of what type of doctors you see, what do you see them for, and when you're going to see them again. Notoriously, I'll have people say, yeah, I know I should follow up to see my doctor, but they didn't call me, so I didn't call them, so I guess I'm healthy and I don't need to be seen. And that's really might not be the case. 
make sure that you know when your next appointment is. You can go over your labs. You can go over any abnormalities. I can look and see what the x-ray from the ER showed. All these different sorts of things that are a nice stopgap to make sure nothing gets missed because that's really the key, keeping everybody healthy. All right, last couple of words of advice. I'm going to throw it back to you, my friend, Dr. Julius. Keeping yourself safe. Last couple bits of advice. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that we have anything more. We, I think we've hit up the we top 10. We hit all 10. the 10. Top the top 10. 10 are great. I'll post them on Facebook, you guys. So if you didn't get them, I'll put them down again. Can we convince you to be here longer than a year? It all depends on uh, how much uh, seafood and poke you have available. Well, then you're never leaving. I think we're safe. All right, Dr. Leslie, last word on staying safe wherever you are in the medical system. I want to reiterate what Dr. Pham said about this, the care provided throughout Hawaii that's extremely safe and very high quality. And also to put a pitch in there that all the organizations I know, Queens as well as Kaiser, Hawaii Pacific Health, HHSC, all of them are investing huge amounts of resources and time um, to make sure that the highest quality and safe care is provided to all the people of Hawaii. 100% of the time. You got it. Nothing less. All right. Thank you so much, both of you, for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can go to our podcast. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kozak. We'll see you again next week. Mm-hmm.